Well, it's always good to uh, be with you. It's always good to open the Word of God, isn't it? And to be able to share together from the Bible. That's what we're going to do from this passage in Second Chronicles. Maybe for some of you it's a well-known passage, for others of you it is not so well-known. So we're going to, I hope, just unpack something for all of us. The title of this message is, When You Don't Know What to Do. When You Don't Know What to Do. I want to start this morning with a question. The question is, is being a Christian easy in 2019? If you're a Christian teenager, is it easy being a Christian teenager when most of your friends are not? If you're at university or college, is it easy being a Christian in university when the prevailing culture is so often very far removed from what is being taught here on a Sunday morning? Is it easy being a married couple with young children? Or an older Christian, maybe facing health problems? Or even the loss of a loved one? Maybe some of us are facing financial pressures or increasing demands from work where work seems to just demand so much. It often seems that there are multitudes of things which bombard us. Things from within and things from without. And as we remember today, in particular, the freedoms for which so many fought and gave their lives in conflicts, maybe some from our own families. It seems as if the freedoms for Christians today in our own nation to declare this is what the Bible says is being so often and systematically eroded. Eroded in the media eroded in education, and eroded in the political arena. I think if you look back over the last five years, ten years, or twenty years, you would have to say that what is acceptable behaviour today in the consensus is quite staggeringly different to what it was years ago. Those issues around sexuality, the sanctity of human life, the standards in political life, standards on films or television, standards in what is acceptable to say on social media. There has been this paradigm shift, which in the words of the last verse of the book of Judges, it seems that every man does that which is right in their own eyes. So we need a framework We all, however old we are, however long we've been a Christian, we need a framework to help us face the multitude of things from within and from without. And I trust that 2 Chronicles 20 will help us a little in that this morning. Now the problem is, as you come to 2 Chronicles 20, it starts off, it happened after this. 
And you have to say, well, what is this? It happened after what? And so we just need to give a little bit of background to this man, Jehoshaphat. And you can go back to chapter 17, which starts the beginning of Jehoshaphat's life in terms of what is recorded for us when he succeeds his father Asa as the king of Judah. Now remember that there are 12 tribes divided into the 10 in the north, 2 in the south. Judah is regarded in the scriptures as the southern kingdom. That is what we're speaking about this morning. And we're told in chapter 17 verse 3 that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. God was with him. And he is a man who wants to bring biblical reformation into the nation. And so chapter 17, verse 4, he seeks the God of his fathers, walks in his commandments, not according to the the acts of Israel. Verse 7, in the third year of his reign, he sends out leaders to teach in the cities of Judah. Now what do they teach? Well, they teach the word of God. And so here is a man who is seeking under God to teach the Bible, as they had it then, to the nation. Now the best of men are men at best. And in chapter 18 we find that Jehoshaphat makes a very unwise choice and he has a liaison with the northern king of Israel. We haven't got time to go into that, you can read it later. But in chapter 19 he comes back on track. And so we read in chapter 19, verse 4, Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and sought to bring them back to the Lord God of their fathers. Now, picture this. Here is a king who is acting like an evangelist. He's going out amongst the nation trying to urge people to come back to God. I don't know if any of you watched the Festival of Remembrance service last night. And there in the box, the royal box, was William and Kate and Harry and Meghan. And I thought, having been studying the passage during the day, what would it have been like if Harry or William had just said, stop for a minute, come back to God Nation, come back to God. What impact would that have had? National television, 20 million people or whatever, 10 million people watching. Well, here is the king saying to the nation, come back to God. He's acting as an evangelist. And he appoints in chapter 19 those uh, leaders Uh, It refers to them as Levites and priests and heads of family to bring the scriptures into everyday life. And so chapter 19 and verse 8, he commanded them saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a loyal heart. And his last words to the leaders of the nation before we come to the passage we want to study the very last words which we read, verse uh, 11 of chapter 19, he says to them, behave courageously and the Lord will be with you. 
behave courageously and the Lord will be with you. After this. After this it happened that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And then some came and told Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. They're in Hazes and Tamar and Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared. Now what has he just said? Act courageously. What does it now say? Facing this great multitude, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now let's just capture this a moment. Repeatedly in chapter 20, this phrase, a great multitude, is repeated. Verse 2, verse 12, verse 15, verse 24. A great multitude. Please get the picture. This is no little problem. This is a great multitude of enemy against Jehoshaphat and the people of God. He's just told them to act courageously. And now faced with obeying his own counsel, we're told that he fears. You know, it's a reminder to us that it's often easier to tell people what to do than to do it. It's a great challenge for those who speak from the front. To tell people, urge people to pray, urge people to read the Bible, urge people to witness. Are they doing it themselves? Am I doing it? It's a challenge and here is Jehoshaphat. He said, act courageously. And now we're told in the face of opposition, he's afraid. I'm sure some people would have looked at Jehoshaphat and said, well, he would never be afraid. Look, he's the king. He's got everything together. How could he possibly be afraid? He's immune from any fears, immune from any anxiety. Like some sort of Teflon Christian. Do you know what Teflon in the old days? Teflon, nothing sticks. Nothing would stick on Jehoshaphat. But he's human. He looks at the enemy. He looks at this great multitude and he's afraid. Well, it's very, very easy, isn't it, for us just by looking at this passage to identify with Jehoshaphat. And we're going to learn this morning, it's how we react to these things that come across our paths. For you, for me, things come across our lives which we have to deal with. And we're reading here about Jehoshaphat and how he reacts to these things. And we're going to see three things. Very simply, we're going to see that in these verses, the importance of number one, prayer, number two, listening to the word of God, and number three, singing. So we're going to look at prayer, the importance of prayer in verses 5 to 12, the importance of listening to the word of God in verses 13 to 17, and the importance of singing in verses 18 to 22. So prayer, 
we have a, an incredible prayer here from Jehoshaphat as he's faced with this problem because the word in verse 3 is not fear as being the final word, is it? And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. That is what is important. I want us to go right to the end of the prayer to see something vitally important in verse 12. Because in this prayer, he admits his weakness and focuses his eyes upon God. Verse 12, O our God, will you not judge them? We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I want us to know that this admission of weakness is never far from anyone that God is going to use. Weakness is never far from anyone that God chooses to use. You can go back through Scripture. You can see Moses, for example. Remember Moses, 80 years of age, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert looking after sheep. And now God comes to Moses and says to Moses, you're the man to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, who am I? 40 years ago, he would have wanted to do it. Now he says, who am I that I should go? And the Lord says, you're the man. And Moses says, well, what will I say? I wouldn't know what to say. And the Lord says, this is what you will say. And then Moses says, but, but Lord, suppose they don't believe me. And God gives to Moses a word that as he goes, he would be with him. And then Moses says, but Lord, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. It's just not natural for me to speak, although that wasn't true, as Acts records. And then finally Moses comes out and says, Lord, will you just please send somebody else? And yet Lord, God says to Moses, you're the man. D.L. Moody, in writing about this passage, says, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody 40 years learning he was nobody, and then 40 years discovering what God does with nobodies. He was weak. He knew it. Or what about Gideon? Remember how Gideon, the story back in Judges chapter 6, the Lord comes to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon questions God in exactly the same way as Moses had questioned God. A whole series of questions. How can I save Israel? My family is the weakest and I'm the least in my family. You're the man. Gideon was God's man for the hour. He felt his weakness. As did Jeremiah when the Lord came to Jeremiah... And the Lord says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart, a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah says, I can't speak. I'm, I, I'm too young. You're the boy. You're the man, says the Lord. You see, this too old 
I'm too old. I'm too weak. I've too many past failures. I'm too young. I wouldn't know what to say. And the Lord says, I am with you. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And somebody once complimented him on the impact that the mission had had. And he replied to them, it seemed to me that God looked over the whole world for someone who was weak enough to do his work. And when at last he found me, he said, he's weak enough, he will do. You know, it's so different from the world we live in, this personality plus, multi-talented, being strong, self-sufficient. That image is what counts. It's not image. It's weakness, recognizing God's strength. That is what God uses. And so Jehoshaphat recognizes his weakness there in verse 12. We have no power against this great multitude. We don't know what to do, but. And that is what this prayer tells us. The but. Our eyes are upon you. And so what do we find in this prayer? Very, very briefly, we haven't got time to go into the prayer. Please just study this incredible prayer. In the prayer, number one, he pleads the character of God. Verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might? so that no one is able to withstand you. He's pleading the character of God. God, you are God in heaven. You are the Lord Almighty. He pleads the character of God. And then he recalls the actions of God in the past in verses 7 to 9. Are you not the God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before you? This is what you did in the past, Lord. And it's though he's saying to the Lord, you did this. Now we're faced with opposition. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. And so he's praying to God. He's pleading his character. He's recalling what God has done in the past and then he brings his present situation to God in verse 10 and says, Now, this is what is happening now, verse 10. There are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession. O oh, our God, now... Will you not act? And so it is. We have this incredible prayer. Please study it. Note, it's framed around three questions. The question in verse 6. O Lord, are you not God in heaven? What's the answer? Yes. It's framed around another question in verse 7. 
did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before? The answer, yes. The next question, verse 12. Will you not judge? So here we have these questions in prayer by Jehoshaphat to God. Is it wrong to question God? Come to the Psalms, Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O God? Why are you hiding your face in my times of trouble? Psalm 13. How long will you forget me, O Lord? Forever? No. Do you ever question God? Do you ever question God in prayer? Samuel Chadwick, a, a writer, preacher from a former generation, said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies or prayerless work or prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Or Richard Sibbs, when we go to God in prayer, the devil knows that we go to fetch strength against him and therefore he will oppose us all that he can. Have you been opposed in prayer this week? Has prayer been easy? Have you struggled with prayer? You're not the only one. Many of us have struggled with prayer this week, haven't we? if we're honest. And here is a framework for us to come to God. I'm faced with opposition. I'm faced with things that I often don't know what to do. And here is Jehoshaphat saying, Lord, you're God. Lord, you helped me in the past. And Lord, there's a multitude of things in my life that seem to be against Please do it again. That is prayer. We can question God. We can ask God. We remind ourselves of who God is. And in framing our prayers, we grow closer to him. But notice, secondly, it's not only prayer. He listens to the word of God. We see this in verses 13 to 17. And this word from God comes from a man called Jehaziel. Now verse 13, all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. The battle is not yours, but God's. Well, although we're told a little bit about Jehaziel, 
as far as we know, this is the only mention of this particular man, Jehaziel. There are others mentioned in 1 Chronicles and in Ezra, but of this particular man in the whole of this chapter. I don't think there's anything particularly distinguished about him from other Levites. They were the people who instructed in the word of God. But here is a word from God to Jehoshaphat and to the nation at this particular time. Was he some great personality? No evidence. Was he a great orator? There's no evidence. But the Spirit of God speaks through Jehaziel to Jehoshaphat. And I just want to highlight, as we did with three questions in the prayer, three exhortations from Jehaziel to Jehoshaphat and thereby to us. Exhortation number one is found in verse 15 and also in verse 17. So his exhortation is framed at the beginning like bookend here and bookend there. What is it? Do not be afraid nor dismayed. It's repeated twice, verse 15 and verse 17. This is a word from God to those who are fearing. Do not be afraid. Why? Because they're about to see God working on their behalf. You're not actually going to need to fight this battle, says Jehaziel. But your task, second exhortation, verse 17, is to stand firm. They are to stand firm or stand still. Doesn't mean do nothing, but they're to stand still. And third exhortation, see the salvation of the Lord. Can you see these three exhortations? Do not be afraid, stand firm, see the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord on your behalf. Well, it's a great exhortation from this man of God, bringing a word from God to the people for this time. And their responsibility is what? To receive it to believe it, and to obey it. Now the point of the prophecy here from Jehaziel is not that the people throw up their hands, that's it, I don't have to do anything. That's not the response which was required. Now the point about this prophecy is that they were unable to do anything effective in their own strength, but they are to see that their strength is in God. And sometimes we as Christians, when we look around us and we seem to be facing such overwhelming odds, and our resources seem so limited, don't they? Your resources to fight or to, to actually stand up against those things that are thrown against us. We need the thus says the Lord. We need this word 
God has spoken. Of course, thus says the Lord appears more than 400 times in the whole of the Bible. How important it is that we recognize that it is our receiving what God has said in his word, which is going to strengthen us against the opposition and be able to go in the strength of the Lord. Now, it's very important for us to have confidence in the Bible. Do you? Do you have confidence in the Bible that this book is as relevant today as it was when it was written? It's very interesting. I just want to put something up on screen which may or not appeal to one or two of you. This is something which appeared. Now, you may not understand it because I don't understand it either, but this was a paper, a scientific historical archaeology paper that was published just six or so weeks ago. Ancient technology and punctuated change detecting the emergence of the Edomite kingdom in the southern Levant. Now, the southern Levant is the the biblical part of Israel and the various countries surrounding Israel. Now, did you notice the word Edom in this passage? Right, in verse 20, the people of Moab uh, and the people of Edom were coming against. So, we find Edom mentioned in this passage. Now, many historians and many archaeologists said Edom didn't exist. So it was a myth that you had this kingdom of Edom. Now, very interestingly, you might not understand this, but you'll understand the Daily Mail. So, the next slide. The Daily Mail had September, just about six weeks ago, slag heaps from ancient copper mines in southern Jordan and Israel revealed the ancient biblical kingdom of Edom was real. So many historians said Edom didn't exist, that what was in the Bible was a myth. Now the Daily Mail tells you the Bible is true. Right, that's fantastic, isn't it? Boris lies, but the Bible is true. That's what the Daily Mail is saying. So we can go now with confidence. Well, the Times said it as well. Scientists find the state of Edom. It's not just a Bible story. It is true truth. And every discovery that is found actually tells us the Bible is true. So we can go out against the opposition, the opposition of science, the opposition of whatever it is, the oppositions that you find knowing with confidence that we have a word from God which is true because he is a God that cannot lie. Well, we need it, don't we? I need it. We need to know the truth of the Word of God. Well, let's conclude. Prayer, the Bible, this is what Jehoshaphat needed. But he also needed, thirdly, as we see here, the encouragement of singing. The encouragement of singing. We find that in verses 18 through to 22. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. All Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, bowed before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. They rose early in the morning 
went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord. Verse 21, And when he consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And they went out saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Martin Luther was not only a theologian, but he was a preacher and a hymn writer. And he said this, let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures and then let his people respond with grateful songs of praise. Now I recognise that just a few weeks ago Ian spoke on Psalm 40 about the importance of singing. And he mentioned, for example, that the first reference to singing that we have in the Bible or recorded for us is in Exodus chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And then throughout the whole of the unfolding canon of Scripture through the Old Testament, we see singing as being absolutely foundational to the people of God. We see that in 1 Chronicles 16, for example, where the Ark of the Covenant had been recovered from the Philistines, brought into Jerusalem, and on the day that the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem, on that day, David appointed thanksgiving to be sung to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, Tell of all his wondrous works. And you can go through, of course, the Psalms are songs, aren't they? The Psalter, the songs. We've read some Psalms already this morning. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God, my King. Bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. It's not only the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, you find that the Lord Jesus Christ sang. On the night in which he was betrayed, when the Lord Jesus Christ was facing the cross, so as he went to the cross on the night in which he was betrayed, we are told in Matthew 26... Having instituted the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Do you remember how Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi? In the stocks, beaten at midnight. What are they doing? Singing. What were they singing? Probably psalms. That's what they had. But they were singing praise to God in the situation they were in with great multitude of opposition against them. Here they are singing. And of course you go through to that final book of the Bible. What do you find in Revelation? 
Revelation chapter 5. Three incredible choirs. There's the choir of the 28. There in 5 verses 9 to 10. The choir of the 28, you have the four creatures and the 24 elders, which signifies the whole of the people of God. Twelve tribes in the Old Testament, 12, uh, 12 apostles in the New Testament. And you find that the song which they are singing is, Worthy is the Lamb who has been slain. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. You were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. What a choir. There's actually a bigger choir. There's a choir of 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. A few of us went to Belfast a few weeks ago, back in June, and there was uh, 10,000 people singing the praise of God in a choir of 1,000. And we sang, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Well, there were 10,000 singing, Oh, for it should have been over 10,000 tongues to sing. But in Revelation, we have this song of thousands upon thousands singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then there's the choir of all creation, ultimately bowing before the Lamb who was slain, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. There's power in singing. There is power when the people of God sing. Spiritual worship is powerful as long as it's true truth that we're singing. John Piper in that uh, Belfast convention said that he preached in Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, USA, for 35 years. And he often wondered how many people left the service on a Sunday reciting the points in his message versus going in the car singing one of the hymns or songs that had been sung. He said, I think I know what is true. Not many of you remember the points, but some of you will go home singing theology singing a song, singing a hymn about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, edifying you for the week which is ahead. Well, my time is gone. There's always more that clearly one wants to say but can't. So let's take this passage, shall we? Here's Jehoshaphat. His situation's very different from ours. This is about a Middle Eastern narrative, Middle Eastern nations. Maybe that seems very distant from your routine this coming week. And it is. But God is the same. The need to pray is the same. The need to hear from God in his word is the same. And the need to sing the praise of God is the same. Everything seems so hard. The opposition was great. Fear was there. But as he unpacks his understanding of God and of his word 
and of his praise. So the enemy was defeated. And we need to do just the same. And we need to go from this place this morning, telling out from our souls the greatness of the Lord. We're so grateful, living God, for the Bible. We're so thankful that words that were written so many years ago in a very different cultural setting are absolutely relevant to us in 2019. All of us face opposition. For some people here, it might seem like a multitude of things against them. Yet you are their God. We come to you, we acknowledge the great privilege of prayer. Sometimes it seems so hard and we ask for your help. Please teach us to pray to understand your word and to enjoy the benefits of coming to you in song. And for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, we pray that they would find you to be the Lord, their salvation, and be able to tell out from their soul the greatness of God. Be with us, we pray. Thank you for the fellowship of your people. And we thank you for our time. Give us the blessing of Christian fellowship now in the hours of this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.